I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corin Podcast. Every week on the Corin Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem, and welcome back to the Korean Podcast. Continuing in our series of episodes that look at Tanakh from different angles, in this episode, we're going to be looking at Tanakh translation. We're just months away now from the release of the new Amagaman edition Korean Tanakh, with translations by Rabbi Lord Sachs Zatzal and Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb Schlitter, amongst others. And we were joined by two guests who played a key role in that new translation. We were indeed. Uh, we were joined first by Professor Will Lee, formerly of the English Department and Director of the Honours Programme at YU, where he taught for nearly 40 years, um, and our friend and colleague uh, Jessica Sachs, um, who has worked on several translations um, found in different Koran books, um, who was the senior translator of the new Magaman edition, Koran Tanakh. Let's dive right in. We're delighted to be joined by Professor Will Lee. Professor Lee, thank you so much for joining us on the Quarren Podcast. Glad to be here. Now, can you just start by telling us, how did you get involved in the Quarren Tanakh project? Well, um, the editor of Quarren is Ronnie Ziegler. He was a former student of mine a long, long time ago. But apparently he kept me in mind and reached out to me in the hope that I might serve as literary editor for part or all of the the knock part of the project. Uh, I don't know whether it was clear that I was going to do as much as I did. It turned out that I was actually the, the literary editor, the only literary editor for all of knock, every book of knock. So... I think that I was able to turn things around fairly quickly, and I believe everybody was satisfied with the work, so it worked out extremely well. I actually was half-time in the summer, spring-summer of 2017, which is when I started to work on the project. And the last work I did was the spring of 2020, so it was three years. And by the time uh, it was getting to its late stages, I was fully retired. So it was a wonderful thing, actually, to be involved in such a meaningful and uh, powerfully um, engaging project uh, as I moved uh, into retirement. So I'm really grateful to have been involved. It was extremely exciting for me. Interestingly, your listeners may be interested to know that actually, although I'm a sort of ethical humanist, multiple religion, truth is where you find it type of person, I was extremely aware of the stakes of working on something that is a sacred text. And it somehow raised the level of engagement on my part, despite my not sharing uh, the orthodox outlook. So, um, so, um, it happens that, 
uh, Ronnie Ziegler and his wife, Yael, are in a small group that was organized by Yitz Blau, where we read poetry together and discuss it every couple of months or so. And that's been a wonderful thing, too. And although the two didn't cross so much, that is, I never talked about the project while in that group, uh, it, it was great to actually uh, be interacting with Ronnie in both uh, respects. I mean, you mentioned that it was a, a fairly long process, uh, you know, working on, on this. And, and, and you also uh, you, you mentioned your your background and, and the sort of the lens from which you were uh, approaching the task. Um, I mean, could you explain just before we, we go a bit further into that? What what is the role of a literary editor when it comes to um, a translation of the Bible? I wasn't aware of this when I started the work. I thought this was something perhaps peculiar that Corin had come up with uh, to try to enhance the project. But it turns out this is an extremely long tradition. That is, uh, uh, literary editors are common in translations of the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew to English. So what is a literary editor? I really had the responsibility of making sure that the English worked well and reflected literary values. So the translators were responsible for the faithfulness to the Hebrew, and I was responsible for making sure that it was going to be a fluent uh, translation in English that worked well in the language. And there was a lot to that. Uh, Some of the translators were uh, from British backgrounds, And this was supposed to be a translation into idiomatic American English. Um, The translators were all Orthodox. And the way that one way that reflected itself was that Hebraisms or Orthodoxisms or however you want to refer to it, crept into the language that they used when they translated. So coming from the outside with fresh eyes, it was a great advantage to me not even to know where those came from, but to recognize that they simply didn't work in ordinary or literary English. So that's, that's something. And with different translators, sometimes there was a lot of back and forth. And sometimes it was kind of difficult because I really needed to them, them to explain what they were trying to get at in their translation from the Hebrew. What aspects of the Hebrew were they trying to actually insert into the translation? Because without understanding that, I could make a a, a proposal for some different kind of language, but uh, that could be running across, you know, uh, you know, stepping on their toes as it were. Um, and I didn't really, really want to do that. I wanted to have a, a dialogue. And sometimes it took two or three emails back and forth. But I believe that in all cases, we were able to establish a dialogue. Another factor, which I wasn't really expecting, 
was that the translators would sometimes try to make the English reflect aspects of Hebrew that the English simply could not reflect. So it was a kind of a quixotic attempt on their part uh, to, to do that. And I had to kind of um, point out why it didn't work and try to get as much of the Hebrew again, uh, the aspects of Hebrew into the translation as possible. Could you give an example of, of where a translator was trying to sort of force the Hebrew into English? Uh, and also, for, you know, for the uh, uninitiated, such as myself, uh, what does it mean, you know, an idiomatic uh, American English translation? I think that some of it had to do with the sound of Hebrew that is the music of the Hebrew language, which they would try to translate into a parallel music in English. But of course you have different sounds, different letters. It, it just uh, from ranging from difficult to impossible uh, to, to do that. That's one example that occurs to me. <clears throat> so, what does it mean to be in idiomatic American English? There are a lot of sub-issues to that. So, grammar is a big topic. And I spent a lot of time on commas versus semicolons versus periods. There was a kind of outbreak of commas in most of the translations. Just they multiplied through the sentences. So almost true in some cases that each phrase would be set off by a comma. So that just couldn't happen. So I cut a lot of those. Um, the question of tone and level of style, and that includes the issue of archaism. We tried to stay away from archaism altogether, but there are certain uses of language that sound biblical and seem biblical and aren't yet archaic, but they also aren't in standard English anymore. And so I felt the freedom to use some of those because I think it'll enhance the flavor. 50 years from now, they probably will be archaic, and those instances will probably be gone. Uh, but there is a kind of biblical eloquence that needs to be preserved, even despite the simplicity of some of the books. Uh, certainly in the poetic books, that's true. Diction was extremely important word choice, obviously crucial in any work of literature and in any translation. So in this case, many of the problems had to do with contemporary usage, that is usage that's uh, recognizably contemporary, having to do with this time we're in right now, versus a language that's somewhat less time-bound, not necessarily universal, but somewhat less time-bound. And so, for instance, military language. 
there are a lot of battles. <laughs> there are a lot of opponents. Uh, there are even looks at strategies for winning uh, a war or a battle. And so one of the translators used the phrase combat troops. Okay. It's a problem. You can't really use warriors because warriors may be part of a group, but they're really considered individually. Each warrior is a warrior. Warriors, don't, it doesn't conjure up any sort of organized movement of people who are fighting a battle. Troops might work, but combat troops, doesn't that sound like a World War II movie? Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it really has a kind of ring to it that doesn't belong in the Bible. So the attempt was good. This is supposed to be contemporary American English. And so theoretically it could work, but I found a lot of instances where language would just, you know, I, I would look at it on the page, I would hear it in my ear and it would go clunk, right? And I would say to myself, okay, that clunk has to be removed <laughs> from that passage somehow. And then there was a brainstorming that would happen between the translator and me, and sometimes uh, Jessica Sachs, uh, occasionally even Ronnie Ziegler, in figuring out what to do about that kind of issue. So I think most of your listeners actually are going to be glad to have left grammar mostly behind and be a little free with it, you know, not pay so much attention to it. But in this translation of the Bible, it's crucial to use it in a consistent and expressive way and a correct way. And that's something major that I brought uh, I think it's fair to say that there was no translator. Maybe there are proofreaders in Koran that do this kind of thing, but none of the translators conform to the standard rules of American grammar, which are only slightly different from, from British grammar. I'll just insert here something you'll edit out, but I'm answering at some length. Is, is, are these, I can make things briefer if you want or is this okay you're, you're doing perfect okay <laughs> perfectly perfect, perfectly, perfectly. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> um when you came to the project originally i think you said back in 2017 what were some of the key features that you wanted to make sure were incorporated into this new translation so i want to be careful about that question i was given instructions as literary editor by Corin that they wanted a fluent, idiomatic, American English translation. So that's really rather basic. It's not even necessarily, to begin with, particularly literary. It's really a problem of language, isn't it? Um, and I didn't come in with predispositions. I'm literary editor, and so I want to make it the translation as literary as possible. Well, that would have been stupid because there are so many different kinds of biblical books 
and even within books, different kinds of material in the books. And so I didn't want to impose anything. I wanted to be instructed by the translation I received from the translator and really go from that. Having said that, I come from a background in English and American literature and in literature and translation. And so that gives me a certain kind of framework that I just was going to bring into it no matter what. So uh, I believe I'm extremely well known for teaching and espousing close reading of the text. So if anything, I wanted my literarily edited version to be even closer to the text than the translator's was. I didn't want to get further away. I wanted to get closer. And then certain basic things that are true of uh, study of the Bible and of study of literature in general are such matters as genre. Genre is so important, you know, narrative and within narrative, historical narrative versus storytelling types of narrative, poetry, song, uh, prophecy, and prophecy isn't one thing. Each prophet has a rather distinctive voice and sometimes more than one voice. And so it's a matter of really trying to respect that. Uh, issue of genre, issue of uh, voice, poetry versus prose. I wasn't aware how much poetry there is in the Hebrew Bible. Many of the translations that I've read over time, and it happened that I had just read through the entire Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible a few months before Ronnie Ziegler asked me to participate. So I, all of this was very fresh in my mind. But uh, there's much more poetry in the prophets, for instance, than I had any idea of. And my specialty, one of my specialties is poetry. And so I really leaned hard on bringing out the poetic aspects. Much of the Bible has a kind of a simple eloquence. Eric Auerbach captured that in his great book, Mimesis. Um, but the poetic books can reach a very high degree of eloquence. My favorite book of the Bible, Hebrew or Christian, is Job, which has received a lot of literary treatments as well. And it happened that I was working with a brilliant translator. They were all brilliant in their own ways, but Annie Cantar is really a poet as well as a translator. And so our back and forth, which lasted a long time, it took a long time to get through all of Job. She had many other responsibilities. And so she really was coming at me with chunks of chapters uh, over, I, I, I'm almost going to say well over a year. I know that might've been almost a year and a half, two years. We both have strong opinions about poetry, strong opinions about language. And so we didn't get in into any battles. There was no hostility, but there was this joyful dialogue about specific passages and about specific issues in Job. Uh, I think that we both thoroughly enjoyed it. I was actually sad when those last chapters came in and I finished editing them and we finished the back and forth. So um, I think 
in interesting ways, I had never done any formal editing, although I've edited all my life. I had never done any literary editing, right? But it's as though major portions of my career inadvertently and unconsciously were preparing me <laughs> to participate effectively in this project. And um, so Ari asked about um, you know, methodologies and, and things you wanted to make sure were incorporated before the project began. Um, I suppose my question then is, now the project has come to its completion, uh, at least uh, on your end. Were there any methodologies or uh, approaches that you had to develop or perhaps you have reassessed after you know a, a long career uh, you know studying the English language um, that you've you know co- you've uh, come to realize through translating or through editing the translation of the Bible well the points that I've just made about my background really are partly about methodologies. Uh, I had lunch time one time with uh, Chaim Soloveitchik, and he made the point that students at yeshiva are not nearly aware enough of genre when they look at the Bible and when they look at the Talmud and so on. And so uh, there are aspects of literary study which stands students in good stead. And I, I had many students over the years who actually went on into study of the Bible after their undergraduate years. Uh, and I know, felt that the courses in English that they took in literature and probably in other literatures besides English uh, affected and influenced uh, the way that they went into Bible studies. So new methodologies I just think that, in a way, any great work of literature that you're reading should, and in my case it does, put you to school. It teaches you how to interpret it. And so the tools for interpretation are going to differ from book to book. So in that sense, the whole project was really a matter of migrating (laughs) from one set of methodologies in this book. Now I'm on the next book. What do I need to bring to it? Right. Um, It's all in English, but that doesn't even begin to cover what you need to be sensitive to in order to edit and in order to translate. I, I do want to emphasize that the translators did an awful lot of work of interpretation and conversion into English before the texts even got to me, right? They, they all were good writers. I, I had never read the prophets so carefully, any of them. And in fact, in previous readings, I was a bit put off by some of the prophets. Jeremiah comes to mind. Uh, you know, he led to the literary genre of the Jeremiad, So he's known for attacking. There's so much repetition, even within one prophet. And then if you go from prophet to prophet, so many uh, themes that, uh, but if you get down into the weeds and you're going passage by passage, 
there are nuances in terms of the language for this passage versus that passage. And so really staying alert, staying close to the text, it was a discipline that I guess I've had in reading things most carefully over the years, but it was, I think, enhanced or accelerated and had to be accelerated for this project because of the the variety of different kinds of books I had to treat. I mean, so you're, as you said, you're you're a proponent of you know close readings um, of of any text, and and you know you've just said how uh, you know there's a huge amount of repetition throughout the Bible, um, and therefore a need to try and suss out the the nuance there, um, and. I mean, so much of, of orthodox uh, biblical interpretation is founded on a principle that there aren't any wasted words in the text of the Bible. That every every word is there, every letter is is there for some purpose. Um, and so I wonder, sort of coming from from the outside uh, and looking at the translation itself and editing the translation, um, were you, and if so, in what way, uh, were you? trying to stay faithful to that principle that there there are no wasted words um in the original text um and then how did that come out in in the work that you were doing well it's an interesting question you're probably aware that a lot of people have actually tried to condense the christian bible or condense the hebrew bible and sort of get at the essence of it jefferson is one famous example you know it's too long. We'll just get it down to the essence and then everybody can get at it and understand everything they need to know and so on. Um, I think that a careful interpretation of the Hebrew at one extreme would lead to a kind of word for word literalism. And maybe that would preserve more of the nuances than any other approach. It would also produce an unreadable English translation. It just would be so deadly, it would come down to appealing only to scholars and specialists who would then refer back to the Hebrew and kind of see, oh, this is going on, that's going on. I can see maybe a difference that I didn't see before through this English translation, but it's just impossible. And I'm sure that I cut some words, (laughs) you know, sometimes the repetition within a sentence is incredibly awkward. And so I tried not to lose anything when I did that. Here's another example. Uh, Someone who really wants to be completely faithful to the Hebrew. I sometimes would move a phrase from the middle of the sentence to the beginning of the sentence. And the result would be just a lot smoother and sometimes more dramatic version of English. There'd be more suspense if it were, for instance, a a subordinate clause, then you'd have to wait for the main clause in order to get the point. And sometimes the translators resisted me on this, but I think I uh, actually came out on top of most of those battles because the language was still all there and the English was improved. 
So that that really was my job, right? There there were some cases where it seemed to me that if you reverse the order of two verses, you would come out with a better translation. Or there would be the beginning of a verse, and if you shifted it up to the previous verse and combined it with that, you would have uh, a better literary effect that way. That was a line that we never crossed. We kept the versification the way that it was. And if there were issues where one verse goes into another, the first verse, the sentence isn't even complete. You have to go to the next verse in order to finish the sentence. Well, so be it. That's, you know, we, uh, we lived with that. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, if I completely had no religious restraints, there are a lot of things that I would have done that I didn't do. So I talked about changing the word order. Here's another example where a literal translation of Hebrew would differ from what I recommended in many cases. When I teach writing, I teach students that and is the weakest word in the English language. They should avoid it. Notice I didn't say and they should avoid it. (laughs) So... And should leave their writing. So Vav is pervasive in the Hebrew Bible, as I understand it. The translators tended to put and in. Sometimes it would be but, sometimes it would be or, sometimes it would be low, or, you know, there are various other possibilities. But and really was there all the time. And so the question was, whether that particular and increased the flow and therefore preserved something or whether it just was there and had no use to it. And in fact, if you cut it, nobody would perceive anything missing and there would be a gain in power. So I cut a lot of those ants, a few of them, the translators put back. But that's an example of something where my literary background, and in fact, my background as a teacher of writing in English, in American English, uh, really influenced the way that I went about doing the literary editing. So you've mentioned some of the challenges in translation that came about um, through sort of maintaining whether it's religious requirements or orthodox requirements, um, which you probably expected um, going into it, but what was sort of, or what was the most unexpected challenge or most interesting thing that you experienced working on the project? So I want to split that into two. Um, There were cases where I thought that the Orthodox interpretation based probably on the Talmud in many cases uh, or commentaries or the Masora just most generally departed from the text. And when I found that as in the case of the Hebraisms, right, this is something that's coming into the text. It wasn't there. It's not there. I wanted to argue that the text should survive 
And of course, that orthodox interpretation would survive because there are these commentaries. There is the Talmud. It's available out there. Um, the most unexpected challenge. I, I feel it was a blessing to be able to devote the time that it needed to every one of those books. So if I had been teaching full time at the same time that I was doing that work, there would have been a tremendous amount of pressure and I couldn't go back and go back and go back before I was satisfied and would send a book off was I was expecting the literary challenges and I welcomed them and I found it a great joy to try to meet them. The most interesting thing to me and the most challenging thing was to interact with the variety of translators. And sometimes it just was extremely straightforward. I would do the editing. The translator would send a few comments back, question this, question that. We'd arrive at a consensus and boom, it's done. But each of the translators had a kind of an individual personality. Sometimes I really didn't get to know that personality because there wasn't enough interaction there. But in some cases, I really got to know that personality extremely well. So there was a lot of kind of need for relational expertise or relational sensitivity in engaging in the dialogue uh, with translators. Even tra translators that I got along extremely well with like Annie Cantar and Jessica Sachs, they, they put their life's blood into that work, you know, and they have certain uh, predispositions to say, well, I, I think this is the right way to go. So you don't want to back off. You don't want to not, ex I don't want to not express my opinion about what would work better in English. But on the other hand, I want to do it in a, a straightforward but diplomatic way. And then there were a couple of translators who really did tend toward the faithfulness to the Hebrew in a literal sense to such an extent that it was ver very difficult to actually pull them in the direction of getting to a workable English translation. And that, that took a lot of patience on my part, frankly, uh, to go back and forth that way. And in some cases, I, I didn't really give way if I felt there was an issue at stake. But if I thought that a particular suggestion worked well, it just could work better, but there was a lot of resistance there, then I would say, okay, let me choose my battles here. And, uh, but so, so, you know, it's, it, it's like, um, maybe a couple of years of therapy 
would have helped if I had gone through them or maybe a course in human relationships or reading more of Deborah Tannen on male language versus female language since almost all the translators were women. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't have those advantages, so I had to kind of struggle along. And I, I, I feel good about the, uh, the process and I feel good about the outcome. Well, Professor Lee, I think your your hard work and your patience and, and sensitivity to the entire project uh, certainly um, paid off. Um, but that's all the time we have uh, for this evening. Um, so I want to say thank you very much for joining us on the Quran Podcast. Um, and I hope our listeners uh, will be able to appreciate uh, all of the work you did uh, in um, taking the translations uh, that were given to you and turning them into a, a real work of literary Well, thank excellence. you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. We're joined now by Jessica Sachs, who is the senior translator on the new Magaman edition, Karen Tanakh. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. We received some really excellent feedback uh, after your previous appearance here on the podcast um, in the episode in which we commemorate your, your late uncle, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Zichron and Levracha. Um, so anyone who hasn't uh, done so already, please do go back and listen to that. Um, but Jessica, if you could just give us a, a quick recap um, as to how it came to be uh, that you got involved in uh, tra the translation of the Tanakh and, and Sifra Kodesh in general, um, and, and sort of what led you uh, up to this point? Yes, okay. Um, thank you, listeners. That's very sweet of you. Um, <laughs> um, yes, I... Uh, Last time we were talking about about my uncle and and the collaboration between him and and Matthew and Corin and and we all have a lot to be grateful for him to him for but I specifically um, owe my career to him um, the story in in brief um, I growing up the things that I loved at school were um, were literature reading uh, writing and learning, um, particularly Tanakh and Midrash, the sort of the literature, literature side of um, text learning. Uh, and my uncle was aware of this and he was always extremely encouraging as he was for you know, anybody when he spotted any kind of um, uh, talent or, or ability or, or love like that, he would sort of encourage the person to use it for, for the things that he saw as important. And he would talk to me about kind of the importance of that um, intersection of uh, writing, literature and and Jewish texts, the need for poetry that's informed by the by the Torah and that sort of thing. Um, and I studied English. I went to Midrasha in Israel. I studied English afterwards and then I made Aliyah. And I um, went to study rabbinic literature, actually, in the Hebrew literature department. And at the same time, I was, I was studying in Abet Midrash. And I was thinking, what's next? And I, my mind went to translation. It was a, sort of something that I found I enjoyed. And it kind of sat well with my skill set. And um, uh, next time I met uh, my uncle at a, at a family wedding, or whatever it was, he said, I hear you're interested in translation. That's wonderful. You've got to do that. You must do that. Um, at that time, he started to occasionally sort of call me and ask for help with uh, some something that involved creative writing, some little thing in that area. And I would consistently not be of any use to him. And he would uh, and he would try again. And one day he um, he 
literary agent called me up and told me about the new collaboration that was going on uh, between him and Corinne around the, the what's now the Corinne Sidor and was based on the Chief Rabbi Sidor in England. Um, and would I like to uh, contribute to that by translating the Megillot? And that was sort of an unbelievable, I mean, literally unbelievable uh, job opportunity. And I said, I mean, that, that would be a dream, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to do what you need. Um, so I, I did a sample. I did the first chapter of Kohelet and um, he was pleased and Matthew was pleased. And I started to work at Corin. Um, we worked on the Machsorim and worked on the Megillot. And then we came to the Tanakh, and that's how I'm here. And just to add a bit to the story that wasn't um, relevant to my uncle, because um, I don't think I discussed this with him specifically, but before before all this, when I was at the Midrashah, I studied at a Midrashah on uh, Kibbutz Ananativ, and talked about this a, a bit in the last podcast as well. There was a stage in that year when, through speaking Hebrew, I was able to to read the text without that constant kind of voice inside my head trying to, you know, struggling with the Hebrew. It came a little bit more naturally. And um, and I would sit in the quiet Bet Midrash in the evening and I would read the text and read Parashat HaShavuah, whatever it was for the, and for the first time I could hear the music in it and I could hear the poetry in it, which had never come across. And I would say to myself, how is it that all the translations I've used have not, not, none of them warned me, none of them told me that this poetry was here. How come? And the text that really, I can pinpoint the moment when my, you know, dream to translate began, and that was reading Parashat Nachamu from uh, chapter 40 of Yeshayahu. Just the most beautiful beautiful poetry you can you can find anywhere for, to my taste and very much led by these very strong images and I sat there and I thought right, right now in the present I'm reading with my daughter my little daughter books about girls who want to be ballerinas and I kind of I think it was that kind of experience of hearing this music and just wanting to sort of write the text back to the text and make myself kind of light enough and, um, you know, make my touch light enough that people could just see through me to the, to the text behind. That was, that was, you know, a, a, you know, not a sensible career thought. That was just some dream one day I would love to translate this text and um, and so when we came to the Tanakh project and Matthew very, very kindly um, said, uh, take your pick, you know, choose the book that you want to translate, you know, without a moment's hesitation, I said, Yeshayahu. And that, so that for me, you know, after about yeah. 20 years was the fulfillment of this, this childhood or young adulthood dream. So... Going into the project, you mentioned kind of Matthew said to you to take a pick you wanted to translate, but as, from the perspective of your own personal um, self, but also from the team, what, what is unique about this translation um, and why were sort of, you know, compared to other previous translations and why was it chosen to incorporate 
these unique elements or differences? Well, back in back in the old days when we used to kind of um, you know meet people, you know at kiddush or you know eat in other people's houses on Shabbat, you know people would ask me about what I do, and I whenever I said um, that I'm involved in a Tanakh translation, first response people would give. They still do. But the first response people have is, hasn't it already been translated? Aren't there already a lot of translations? What's what's what? Why is there a need for a new one? Um, and I would, you know, I'm a little bit uh, shy in these conversations, so I would give a very. I wouldn't start talking about ballerinas. I would tell them, um, you know, I would I would say that this is for our community, our, our modern Orthodox Zionist community, and I would point at you know this translation and that translation and why they're not exactly. Uh, tailored to us they're not exactly they don't exactly meet our needs um and you know we have a you know we have a niche in the middle which is true i think hashkafically and in terms of um um attitude to the text identification with the text uh, the resources you know that the, the sources that we look to to understand the text um that's quite a technical answer and then i would throw in there because this was of course what gets me up in the morning we're trying to do a beautiful translation. We're trying to do a translation that um, reflects the literary qualities and techniques of the Tanakh. But you know, now I will go back to the question that I asked myself when I was 19 in the kibbutz. You know, why has no translation ever hinted to me that this was poetry? Well, there's a, the answer is, is in fact the King James. If you look at that multiplicity of translations that people you know, people always mention there are many, many translations already. So open up any kind of Bible comparison site. There are sites like this, like Bible Hub. You can open up, look up any verse, and they'll show you about 30 different translations. And you can also take down from your shelf, you know, whatever Jewish translation you have. You know, this is it's not true of all of them, but you compare all these, all these versions, you'll notice two things straight away. Number one, they're all different from each other because, of course, every you know, pretty much any verse in the Tanakh, uh, there are different interpretations too. So that's you know, each each translation um, contributes what it contributes, brings the approach it brings and the priorities that it brings. The other thing that you'll notice quite quickly if you browse a bit is that they're incredibly similar to each other. In in you know, in probably most cases. I mean, the illustration, I don't have to, incidentally, I would not want anything that I say in this podcast to be construed as criticizing any other translator, because the minute I started working as translator, I gave up criticizing translators, because firstly, because it's a hard work, it's a hard job, and secondly, because you will generally find that the, the thing that you don't like about a given translation is 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 that the translator has different priorities from you. There's no translation that encompasses the whole text. So I'm not trying to criticize anybody at all. Um, but if you take, for instance, our, what we would now call the old Quran translations, what we call the fish translation, Quran Jerusalem Bible. So we think of it as the fish translation, but as, you know, he, without, there's no pretense about it. It's, 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 he didn't translate it. It's revised and updated by Howell Fish. He took a close descendant of the King James Version, not the King James Version. Um, he made certain changes, changed the way it's formatted. He changed, he transliterated all the names. That's very important. 
he went through it verse by verse and he applied his scholarship to it. Wherever he saw something in the translation he didn't agree with, he changed it. But where it wasn't broken, he didn't fix it. Now, different translators, uh, uh, you know, other translators did retranslate it, didn't just revise and update, but there, there is something of that in, in many, many, many translations. The influence of the King James Version is so strong that in many cases it's it's a it's a case of change what needs to be changed and if it's not broken don't fix it which is legitimate but one of the things that comes with that is generally if you open a Tanakh translation you open up Vayikra and then you open up Tehillim and then you open up uh, Eov the style of the translation is pretty much the same voice which is the voice that reflects the priorities again of that translation whereas as we know if you open up the Hebrew there's totally different experiences of you know the different books of the Tanakh written in completely different modes different voices different vocabularies the King James Version came out in 1611 I think at that time the English-speaking world had no clue that there are different genres in the Tanakh. It, it just wasn't known. It was the way that um, biblical poetry works and is structured was pointed out sort of in the late 18th century. So, you know, I'll put it very simply because it's very simple. If you're a librarian looking through books and saying, this goes on the poetry shelf, this goes on the prose shelf, what do you do? You just open the book. In English, you open the book. If it's short lines, then it's on the poetry shelf. And if it's paragraphs, it's on the prose shelf. Every culture has a very quick way of distinguishing prose and poetry. And in the Tanakh, it's parallelisms. You have a phrase and then you have an answering phrase. Uh, the sun won't beat you in the day and the moon by night. The two sides can relate to each other in different ways. But once it's pointed out to you, you next time you read Tehillim, you'll immediately notice it. But you don't notice it until it's been pointed out to you. And the King James translators hadn't noticed it. Now, what they did know about was preaching. That was a really a great time for sermons. Um, and that's reflected in the King James Bible. If you, you pick, a, open up the King James Bible anywhere, put your finger down and you say, my text for this morning's sermon is, and then you read that verse, it works. The style throughout is a beautiful style for reading aloud, um, for oratory, if you think of Martin Luther King, um, weaving in the King James version of that, that those passages from Yeshayahu that I love, it just, in the King James voice, it just weaves in perfectly with his oratory, and that's great because Yeshayahu was a preacher. But we know as as Jews that the Tanakh has a lot of other aspects to it as well. We know that it's a musical text. We know that it comes down to us, and the Masoretic text comes with musical notes, and that's how we experience it most. Kriyat Torah, reading to Hillim in Shul, it's got a tune to it, it's got a rhythm to it, it's got music to it. We know it's got passages which are part of a storytelling tradition. So it's not just Moses on the mountain declaiming to the people. It's also, you know, a grandmother telling stories to her grandchildren. We've, you know, experienced that at Pesach. 
uh, and scholarship, you know, academia is sort of now right, to, I suppose, um, itemizing these, these, um, these genres, talking about the influence of storytelling techniques and, and different poetry techniques and different genres on the, on the Tanakh. Um, and we as Jews know that. And the, and the translators of the King James, who were fantastic, they didn't know that. So I think that's that's uh, that's something that we're bringing. You, if you open up our Tanakh, you know, Vayikra, Tehillim, um, uh, uh, Yov, you won't hear the same voice. You'll hear poetry that's translated as poetry with an ear to the techniques of the poetry. You'll hear storytelling that is that is um, paying attention to those dramatic techniques and the color of the characters and the those things which are really central to a storyteller, the storyteller that we hear in the Tanakh, um, and and so on. With you know, each we had some lovely matches between translators and, and books. Just as I've got a thing with Yeshayahu, you know, the other translators were you know beautifully matched with with the books that speak to them and that they can find their voice in. So I think you know that that's a general thing, which is which is I think very different. Um. You've sort of touched on this a little bit uh, already, and you, you spoke about it uh, when we met last. Um, but the the new translation of the Tanakh is purposely not a direct, you know, word for word translation, um, but it's dynamic, it's interpretive, um, as, as you've touched upon. Um, and can you explain why that decision was made? You've, you've already spoken about, and when we spoke to uh, Professor Lee. Um, who spoke about it from the English point of view, um, talking about like the music of the language that's there and that that has significance and that has meaning. Um, so could you explain sort of why why the decision was made to um, create a, a, a dynamic translation? Or first of all, explain what, what we mean by dynamic translation um, and you know why we chose to do that as opposed to just you know translate word for word as, as we went along. It's... Um... It's a, this is another question that used to come up sometimes at, around the Shabbat table, and I would I would hesitate to answer because I'm ne- never quite sure what the person asking the question really uh, really means when we're in the context of Tanakh, what they're thinking about when they ask if it's a literal translation or not. I have the impression that people kind of think of a literal translation as a sort of truthful, direct translation, and a dynamic translation is. You're, you kind of you know fudge it a bit to sound better, and that's um, that's that's not that's not accurate. Uh, uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about what we mean when we talk about how literal you're being. Um, firstly, we're talking about idioms. Idioms are the phrases that we use in a language that all the speakers of that language. So you know, for us, you know, British English of our particular age group and you know maybe americans you know so take a phrase that we would use without even thinking about it we're not using you know i used to say to my flatmate um hang on a sec i'm just gonna nip out for a bit and she you know she understood every single word but she didn't quite know what i was talking about so that's an idiom that's something where the the technical you know the the like computer translation the literal literal translation of that doesn't explain what you mean when you say it but everyone who speaks your particular kind of subset of the language will understand it immediately so the Tanakh is full of them 
uh, one of the things we can be grateful to the King James Version for is that the King James is a very literal translation. And because of that, a lot of biblical phrases have entered English because the King James translated them pretty literally. But um, so let's say um, im, a very common phrase, im chen So if you're going to be hyperliteral, you'll say, if please, or maybe if now, I have found grace or favor in your eyes. Um, now, you've got the spectrum there. The hyperliteral person will say something like that, which is kind of really not, not really English. And some, some translations will go in that direction, either for a kind, some kind of religious reason or um, some artistic reason. They'll, they'll really prioritize being as close as possible to the Hebrew um, over nice English or easy to understand English or even sort of acceptable English. Then at the other end of the spectrum, you'll have somebody will say, well, why are you translating this as a flowery phrase? It's not a flowery phrase. It's just the, the first phrase that Avraham thought of when he wanted to say please in a polite way. That's just the normal way of saying it. So the right way to, the correct way to translate it, the way which is closest to Avraham's intent when he said it, is just to translate please or if you please. Um, you know, you could say that's the more truthful translation because it conveys what Avraham meant. Now, we've got to put ourselves somewhere in that spectrum. And, and in that kind of case, we'll often we'll actually be more in the, in the literal direction because we want to keep the flavor and the texture of the Hebrew in other situations, we might we might go more towards the um, the dynamic side, but I think actually where we would place ourselves is in in that kind of issue is more literal. But I'm going to bring a more uh, drastic example just to show you really what we're up against um, in the Tanakh and the idiom of the Tanakh. The strong feelings that we might kind of place in the heart, like love and longing. We, we experience them in the heart. That's how we speak about them. In the Tanakh, they experience them in the stomach, in the intestines. Um, is the phrase. So in Shira Shirim, Hey uh, Dalet, it says, My beloved took his hand out of the lock and, you know, he's, he, he knocked at the door. She said, I, I can't open for you now. But the minute he went away, Me'ai Hamu Alav. And the King James Version, being nice and poetic and literal, translates, my beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. Now, let's assume that in 1611 that was really romantic. Um, but in 2021, it's not, it's not very romantic. In fact, it, you know, it really pulls you in the opposite direction to where the poet of Shira Shirin wanted to take you. So what are you going to do with that? Now some, okay, the first instinct of a translator or of one of us, I think, in the team, the first instinct is to say, now, can we be clever? Can we think of a phrase that is in the stomach, but, um, but means the right thing? So you might think, well, could you use butterflies in my stomach? That's a, but you know, we, we often try and be clever and nine times out of 10, we have to, we have to, you know, just throw up our hands and say, okay, 
clever it's nice to be clever but you've got to also you know it's got to work and if it's if it's a phrase that kind of ticks the boxes but it doesn't really mean the right thing then you've just got to let it go a lot of people use a phrase that involves heart because as a that's kind of a cultural translation so as i said you know what they once spoke about being in the stomach now we speak about it being in the heart so translations say things like my heart uh, fluttered which to me sounds very you know barely better than butterflies in the stomach and my my heart was moved my heart was stirred that sort of thing um i'm listening as the translator i'm listening not just to the uh, so I've, i've already got two things in my head here i've got the literal meaning my bowels were moved i've got the what the raya is trying to say and how i would say it in my language and i've also got the sounds as I say, Dodi Shalach Yadom you've got in that, where he's going away, you've got these quite violent sounds, you've got the repeating sounds of the Dalad, which is quite a hard sound, and the guttural Chet. Um, and then you've got this shift, Ume'ai Hamu Alav, soft sounds, and with the Ayin the and the Mem repeaters and these kind of lengthening sounds. And, and I've got the rhythm going around in my head. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is that, um, you know, I don't sit down at that moment and think, well, shall I be literal or shall I be dynamic? I've got loads of stuff that I, that I, that I and I want to optimize what I can get into the translation. And it's, it, it's all of those things together because all of those things together are the way she's conveying this, this really visceral, um, strong feeling. And what I did in that instance, uh, and I, I could have done better. I mean, I brought this example because of the me'ayim, um, but I, 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 what did I do? I said, um, my, my being longed for him. My beloved withdrew his hand from the door and my being longed for him. Why? Because she's, she's locating this feeling in, it. she's not, she's not saying I felt like this. She's saying my stomach felt like this. She's, she's, it's an experience that's sort of happening to her. So I needed something else, something, the heart or the stomach, something other than her to pin it on. But it felt, you know, the heart phrases didn't quite feel as in the gut as, as that phrase, hamu me'ai. So I, so I, you know, I thought all my being, I thought my being longed for him and I, I think I was hearing those long vowels in the, in, in, in the word long which you know that longing in English has you know why do we call it longing because you, you get longer longing you know your heart going out to, towards the thing that you want so that that's you know was I being literal or dynamic I suppose it was being dynamic but I suppose what I'm trying to say is what we're trying to do is just get across as much as we possibly can of all the different kinds of information that is that is in the the verse switching gears before we wrap up um aside from being the realization of a childhood or a teenage ambition what was most meaningful most impactful for you working on a brand new translation of tanakh well um i i suppose i, I i've given an idea of what um, what the work means to me um, as kind of a, a personal uh, a personal endeavor and personal experience religious experience 
Um, and so I'll choose something else, which is the um, the teamwork. There's been an incredible team of translators and editors, um, very diverse group in terms of our interests and our backgrounds. We've got poets, we've got um, academic Tanakh among the translators, obviously, among the editors. Um, uh, um, you know, people coming from a literature direction, from a history direction, um, and uh, rabbis, of course. Um, and the the collaboration has been just incredible. There were times when we were, were there was a long period when we would regularly meet as a group of translators and we would um, sort of workshop each other's work. We had a, a we have a WhatsApp group. It was very active while we were translating and sort of send each other, you know, what do you think about this word? What what have you, you know, I've got this unusual word that comes up and it also comes up in Tefania and Eov. You know, what did you do with it there? And um, coordinating on sort of phrases that we felt should be consistent. And um, so we would, we would discuss them together and see how, how what's the best way to translate it that will work in, in your place and also in my place. Um, and collaborations with editors been really, really, uh, really incredible. You know, I think, for instance, Rabbi Weinreb, who we all know and love, um, worked together with Adele Berlin, who's a very, very renowned professor emeritus, the only non-Orthodox Jew who worked on the in the project, and they had a, like a really sort of fruitful and um, mutually respectful collaboration. And um, and that thinking about it, looking back, um, I mean, w w most of our translators are women. It's sort of a, a majority of the scholarly editors are men, and Will Lee, who you're speaking to as well, is obviously a man. Looking back, I, this was not designed this way, but I, I just realized that there's not a single book in the Tanakh that wasn't translated if it was translated by a woman with a, it would have at least one man editing it and if it was translated by a man it had at least one woman editing it I, I think that's very meaningful if I think about some of the discussions that we had in the the women's as it turned you know as it again not 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 by design but a women's translators group a lot of the phrases we would discuss would be um would be um phrases of the Tanakh that discuss female experiences um, and the Tanakh is generally not not queasy about uh, you know whether it's birth or menstruation or various kind of um, more social female situations um, and often translators male translators historically have been quite um, um, queasy and used all kinds of um, uh, all kinds of euphemisms that that we as female readers uh, find, sometimes find quite alienating and quite, um, you know, a lot less, um, we can identify with them a lot less than the original Hebrew. So we found ourselves, you know, looking for new new ways, I suppose, to, to speak the Hebrew in English. Um, and and I, I think actually that that's really quite, quite a significant thing, although it was, it was something that, again just happened we didn't we didn't talk about it ahead of time so yeah i would I, I think that you know working with the incredible translators and editors on the team that's been the most meaningful and 
as a final question, what I guess I, I guess a, a two part uh, question. What what are your own personal I guess hopes and aspirations for this translation, and why do you think this translation is important for you know the Jewish people and the world? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about this question of why why translate translation of the Tanakh is important it's so it's so obvious when you when you when you think about it that that the, the book which is the most important book in your life should be translated into your language so that you can access it so obvious I, 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 but but we have it in our minds as sort of a bit of an issue and I think in in Christian we grew up in Christian countries and in Christian history it is it has been an issue the church has split over whether the Tach can be translated who can translate it what's an authorized translation and in in Judaism the the, the first translation in shul kind of it, it, during Kriyata Torah began in Eretz Israel we've come full circle it began in Eretz Israel in the first century, so at a time when Hebrew was actually, in some contexts, still a living language, the minute there were people in shul who couldn't understand Kriyata Torah as it was, it was translated. It, not, and, and forget the idea of an authorized translation. Every shul had somebody who would stand up. The guy would read, you know, the reader would read a pasuk, and somebody would translate it. It's sort of in, in integral part of our culture that we have those two things hand in hand. We read the Torah in Hebrew and we daven in Hebrew, so you can go into a shul anywhere at any time, and they'll be the, using the same words that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke. And it, along with that, everybody, you know, it's our responsibility to make sure everyone can learn to read Hebrew and to get as much Jewish education as we can practically give them and they want. And at the same time, the text then comes to meet them where where they are. On the one hand, we we keep the Hebrew, and on the other hand, we uh, we make sure that everyone can understand it. That's just that's just who we are. That's just what our culture is. So I think, you know, we spoke about it a little bit last time. That I, you know, I think in recent years, the translation has taken a little bit of a hit. I don't know if it's the yeshiva culture that we some suddenly have this ideal or this rather unattainable ideal that we shouldn't need a translation um i i don't think you know i, th I think that's not true we need if, if, if as the language is developing and we're developing and our knowledge of the text is developing um every jew needs to have a translation which is using the resources of his generation and speaking his language and and putting across the the text in the in the, in the best and most beautiful way possible, I think it's uh, it's, it's 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 essential. Uh, so my hopes for the translation going forward, you know, my my hope would be that somebody could say, you know, just as I did in the after working very hard on my Hebrew and the kibbutz, open this up and think, wow, this is beautiful. You know, my dream would be that somebody sitting in shul listening to the Haftarah would glance over the English and say, wow, this is beautiful. That's 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 the dream. And that that, that should make them want to read more and learn more and uh, look back over to the Hebrew side and, and see, wow, yeah, that's there in the Hebrew. That's that that 
that's the dream. I mean, thanks so much, Jessica, for joining us. Uh, that's all the time we have. I just wanted to say, you know, it's something that you said uh, a moment ago really um, illustrates what you and everyone at Karin is trying to do with this, this new translation, um, which is speak the Hebrew in English, um, a word that both you and uh, Professor Lee um, kept bringing up with this concept of, of the music of the language and, um, you know, demonstrating the the poetry, um, both literal poetry and the metaphorical poetry of the original Hebrew um, and translating that into English and producing something that is Thank both uh, readable but valuable uh, to someone to read, um, understand and truly appreciate Tanakh. And I think that's something that you uh, have certainly achieved from the, the small bits that uh, I've seen personally uh, of the new translation. Um, and I'm sure... Um, it will begin making waves in the world uh, as soon as it's available, uh, hopefully later this year. So thank you again, Jessica, for joining us. That's all we've got time for. Thank you so much to Professor Lee and Jessica again for joining us this week. REA, if people want to be in touch with us, how can they do so? Well, they can email podcast at corinpub.com and they can find us on all various social medias at Corin Publishers. And for more information on the new Magum edition, Karen Tanakh, make sure to like and follow us on social media and join our email newsletter. Uh, you can subscribe to that at www.karenpub.com. That is the first place to see any new information about the Tanakh when it comes out. Until next time, thanks for joining us.